the mo- the mummy is just focused on getting one girl, and that's all that he wants. Yeah, but but it's not like he just goes give you anything you want. want I'll give you anything, anything you need. <laughs> I'll make your dreams come true. Ladies and gentlemen, sign up now for William Serenades. Cinematic fantastic. Atu, Barada, Nikto. Show you who I am and what I am. Buy a werewolf and leaves becomes a werewolf himself. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Hello and welcome to the Cinematic Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Weatherford. And your other host, William Weatherford? Get ready for opinions, dad jokes, and bad jokes, as we watch and review sci-fi and fantasy films from the classics of yesteryear to the new favorites of today. Great evening and welcome to the ninth episode of our podcast, where it is indeed a very balmy night. Oh, wow. Or rather an embalmy night. Oh. Because we're doing The Mummy. Yeah, everyone, happy Mummy's Day. (laughs) Oh, when is when is Mother's Day anyway? I don't remember. Is that in is like, that in but May? Mummy, <laughs> but mummy, no, yeah. And like William said, we're doing the Mummy, starring first of Dwayne many. The Rock. Johnson. No, <laughs> not kidding. No, that's that's uh the Mummy Returns that came out in the early two thousands or something. All right, yeah, we're doing the Mummy, the nineteen thirty two. The Mummy. Yes. So this is a year after Dracula and Frankenstein came out. They they were just movies. Now we're just on a roll. Mm-hmm. Basically, we're covering so many movies that we're ending with the Invisible Man, which has come out in 1933. So we've got all the rest of the season is just this year and the next year. Goodness me, 33 is a good year for movies because not only do we have Invisible Man, we also have uh, one that's. Uh, really gonna blow your mind i hope it is king kong yeah and like everyone is jumping on this train of the new era and we're doing the universal monster movie era although we're not gonna get another universal movie uh until murders in the room Org. we're gonna do that one i think that's universal yeah and uh king kong isn't universal or is not oh uh, that's rko oh that's RKO. okay yes absolutely and then uh, of course invisible man is universal this movie is I wouldn't say it, like, isn't as good. It definitely has some things going for it, but it's not, like, as quality as Dracula and Frankenstein, not as famous. That was just, it had the explosion, and then the next day they were like, oh, we have this too, you know. And then that's what the mummy's basically role is. But it is very innovation in this movie was immense because this is the first movie we're going to cover that has bona fide music like in the film that is not like the swan like at the beginning just right it's like over the film and so i'm like this is the first film with music and stuff it has its own theme it's a motif and everything it's finally starting to not cling as much to uh the silent era and going for more sound-based stuff. Although, basically, the music is just, you know, setting the scene, basically. Maybe while something dramatic is happening, it'll play. But uh, otherwise, it's really great. I, I, I liked The Mummy. It's Of course, I it, it reminds me of those real pulpy 
movies ultimately. Yeah, we're gonna get some really pulpy movies in like the 1950s well, and stuff. And bit of 40s. it's very Raiders of the Lost Ark too, because a lot of the scenes in this, especially you remember this. Uh, we'll talk about this during the plot part. But do you remember the scene where? The Egyptian uh, helpers or workers are there sing they're singing a song or chant about Allah or whatever, and they're passing things. Kind of like an in Indiana Jones, yes, like setting up the mirror and stuff. Yeah, they, they were, that's cool. They were digging. They were digging. However, this movie was not as Egyptian as I would have liked it to be because it's called the Mummy. It has some Egyptian things, but it's not very Egyptian because after all, the Mummy is only the Mummy for one scene. At the very very beginning, it's just like, well, I'm done. That's all the mummy I'm going to get that's actually a mummy. That is, that is true. I mean, okay, okay. When people think of the mummy, they think of the way he looked in that first scene. And some people may be surprised that you don't see him wrapped up like that again, except in a flashback scene. But we'll cover the reason why. Okay. You, a bit later. I would love to know this. The other thing, though, is I think that they... In future installments, they do kind of go backwards on this and make the mummy look like the mummy. Like he's this, you know, uh, dragging his leg behind him with, with bandages hanging and he's... Yeah, this is much later. Yeah, that's true. The sequels come later. There's a movie that comes out later called uh, Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait till we do those. Right now, we're just going... You know, if we laugh at a scene, it's probably not meant to be laughed at. But when we get to those movies, when you laugh... It's actually, you're supposed to be laughing. So I think that's that's a good thing. So yeah, go ahead. So who do you want to talk about first? Well, talk about the, the how did this idea for wanting to do this movie come about? Do you have anything about that? Oh yeah. So this movie, right about this time, which as you all know, this was, we haven't mentioned this before, but this is a, this came out like about the Great Depression mm. was the 1930s had the Great Depression. So good on them for making Universal making good movies in the midst of poverty and just not being able to get work. They still had work. So that's very gracious that we get to have this era even in the midst of great tragedy and lowliness in life. It's a Great Depression, so uh, kudos. Were the movies cheaper? Did it, did, did you learn anything about how what the movie ticket prices were back then? It's hard to understand uh, you know, what costs were for different things back in the late 20s, early 30s, but I would assume that people could afford to go see a movie. It wasn't so expensive that it was out of the range of the average person. I mean, because uh, after all, there's such thing as you know, Nickelodeons. They only cost a nickel. You know, that's true. But but they but they probably dropped in quality than normal movies. I'm wondering if Nickelodeons were just like you know little little ditties, fi- little five or maybe maybe a five minute long silent film little skit you know that they, you know you know they would just you know play those again and again, like a trip to the moon. You know, kind of length possibly so uh yeah so what was this this was during the great depression or the very so that happened in 29 and uh and i think that that it was carrying over into the 30s the early 30s so so in this world of poverty you get these movies that you can go to and i think you know i mean what else was there to do I mean, they didn't have television, so they would go to these movies. I don't know if the movie serials were out yet. We're gonna go. We're gonna watch some of those compilations of those later. But you know, and eat them too. Oh, nice. No, these are serials. Uh, serials meaning uh, they were in a series. So you know how uh, 
nowadays we would go like, oh, let's watch this streaming series. There's eight episodes, and we go, you know, Doctor Who season. Yeah, a Doctor Who season. We watch watch an hourly thing. Back then, they would have these serial movies, and I I really like them. They'd have they'd have an episode that was maybe fifteen. 20 minutes long, and it would end with a cliffhanger of the hero or character being in, in dire peril or tragedy, you know, whatever. And this is very common. We're also going to do, like, a Flash Gordon, I'm pretty sure. Yes. We're going to do yes. a compilation of that, and that was a serial. We actually have three compilations in a row, so you're going to be super inundated with Flash Gordon lore. Yeah. So this movie was inspired by the recent Howard Carter finding King Tut's tomb, and he excavated that... And that was just a wonder among all the press, and everyone was, like, blowing up. They're like, wow, King Tut existed. The Boy King. That was what inspired this movie. That was 1921, right? Yes, I think so. In fact, in the movie, don't they, when they're finding Imhotep, it says 1921, or somewhere around in there. Or like a Noxonomy. Yeah, yeah. Well, they find Imhotep's mummy, and Imhotep's mummy leaves the sarcophagus and walks off. And it says that Ardeth Bay has been around for 10 years, he says. So it, I think there's a time skip in the movie you know, from that first scene on to later because he, he's able to learn English and kind of inject himself into Egyptian society, I believe. And another thing that people might think, which is actually not true, is that while Frankenstein and Dracula were based off of novels, this was not based off a novel. Right. People think, oh, wait, didn't I read on IMDb that it was a book by John Balderston? I'm sorry, that's a script. He wrote the script for this movie, and uh, based on two things we're pretty sure of. It's uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, he wrote a short story called uh, The Ring of Thoth, or Foth, mm. and uh, Cagliostro, which is a story about, it's like nine pages long, it's about Cagliostro, who's a magician who lives 3,000 years by injecting himself with, uh, I don't know, like, carbon dioxide or something. <laughs> no i don't have it here in my notes let's just call it immortality juice immortality juice and uh they changed the plot of this uh, movie of cagliostro cagliostro <laughs> he changed it from cagliostro was hunting everyone who looked like his ex-wife from long ago ancient times well and then that changed to resurrecting or finding your long-lost ex-wife who was resurrected in the modern age. <laughs> but it's based upon the theory of past lives. People were very interested in this, I think, at the turn of the century, which had been before 1900, when there was a spirituality craze. It didn't have anything to do with, like, religion per se, but it was very obsessed with ghosts and seances and spirituality and things like that and weird stuff, you know, new agey. And also people are like, did the Scroll of Thoth really exist? And I say no. This was based off of the Book of the Dead, and then some people like kind of merged the two. Right, like, made the fictional Book of Thoth, and that's how it came about. Thoth did write the Book of the Dead. That's according to mythology, of course. You know, according to mythology, obviously. there's not some guy named you know Howard Thoth, and he just like wrote it. He just wrote all of it. He goes, "I'm Howard Thoth, and I wrote this." And then later they said, "It's the Book of and Thoth." And then all the dark people being around it, it's like, "Oh, I'm just having a Thoth attitude." Ugh. The Thoth season. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, uh, yeah, the, the, and the thing about the past lives deal is supposed Thothic films. The Thothic films. Supposedly with uh, with reincarnation, you know, somebody was another person, another, another life, and then when they died, their spirit gets recycled back into another body, like a baby. Though the, that being the movie's premise is inaccurate due to, as you should know, mummies 
are, in fact, it's a sacred process for the Egyptians wow. to send them to the afterlife. They even take out your organs because you won't even need them anymore. So it's like, why would you resurrect them? Why would you resurrect them? It's sacred. It's supposed to be sending them to the afterlife. Why do you want to make them come back? Right, and and, and don't they take their organs out? They put flowers and good-smelling things into their body cavity. And the organs they put into these uh, jars called canopic jars that have, like, the head of uh, Anubis on top, like the jackal head over the... Yeah, they found those jars, yeah, but I'm sure the organs are probably desiccated by now. So, uh, first we're going to talk about the director of this movie, which, uh... If you recall from Dracula, we talked about the cinematographer Carl Freund, who then directed this movie. For people who just have no knowledge but our episodes, they think, oh wow, he's just a little rinky old dude who was just a cinematographer for this movie, an unofficial director for this movie. But no, in fact, he invented the unchained camera, which means that they can take the camera and move it all about instead of being on a tripod, so you can know, you have so many possibilities, you know, strap it to yourself, you can strap it on a crane, you can do a car and run through there, there's so many possibilities, dolly cart, like cranes, you can hold it, there's just everything, turn it upside down if you want to. That was, I will tell you right now, that of all the innovations so far, this is the biggest That is one. huge. Think about modern movies, and 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 t- let's take out the fact that you know someone is has a CGI kind of camera soaring through a CGI landscape. Let's not even talk about that. Let's talk about a scene where you're moving through a crowd, and uh, every single camera operator that has one of those little it's a it's special kind of attachment that like a gimbal where it attaches to it, it, uh, a Steadicam. Thank you, Steadicam. Uh, they are actually moving in the spirit of Carl Frund. I mean, that's that, I mean, Carl Frund would look at that and go, yeah, I did that. Yeah, and the shots for, like, Frankenstein, I didn't get to mention this, but the camera shots in Frankenstein are really cool. You know, like, you have them, they move back and forth through the walls sometimes. Yeah. Where it's like, well, they're going back and forth. And I thought, that's pretty neato and fascinating. You know, they just, they rotate it back and forth through the wall set. And it's like, that's pretty cool. And I think they might do a bit more stuff with the camera as well, because after all, they use this later down the line, because this is this is a big invention. Absolutely. And I, I can't see, you know, there, but there are some movies that will lock off the camera for, uh, but they're actually not the norm and they do it for dramatic purposes. But cameras do move often but there's a lot of things they can do nowadays to reduce camera shake which they couldn't back then so it's a little more kind of jarring to our to our modern sensibilities but and yeah. a couple quick things about uh, of his life is that as i mentioned before he you know he was on dracula he was also on metropolis and isle of lucy well, i love lucy came later it did. in the series and uh, metropolis was before this movie and uh, that one is a very famous one of German Expressionism. Yes. We haven't really given that period enough praise because we're not going to cover Metropolis, but if you should probably go watch it if you're looking for more of that era. It's honestly great watch. It's really long, though, or at least it's supposed to be because it's been recovered. Find the one that's on Blu-ray. It's got the best quality. They always do. You said Carl Frund was on Dracula. I remember a little interesting tidbit about him. Do you remember 
Oh, yeah, he was the unofficial director. Yeah. We already mentioned that. It was Todd Browning, and Todd Browning... Because Todd Browning was so lazy. Yeah. I mean, he's got an interesting knack for weird stuff, but man, just... But see, the thing is, Carl Frund, would he have innovated as much as he did if, if there wasn't a Todd Browning that he could take over for and prove his, his abilities? I don't know. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, after all, he was apprenticed into this. You know, he was born in Bohemia... And uh, he moved to Germany later, and then he was apprenticed into cinematography. And uh, yeah. he also participated in the in the Great War, as it was known then. Oh, the uh, World War One. World War One, as well. So that's a couple tidbits. Now, we are going to cover Boris Karloff. Co- cover Boris Karloff? How could we possibly cover everything there is to know about Boris Karloff? You know how many movies we're doing with Boris Karloff? I think there's pr- yeah, we've already covered this in Frankenstein. A lot of his thing, but basically he was just the guy who was dead. After all, they just keep putting Canon Boris Karloff corpses. Canon Boris Karloff. <laughs> no, well, but there's a lot of other things where he's not playing an, an undead creature. Usually, it's somebody, somebody strange. But we've seen him doing this twice, and he's probably gonna do it three times in a row. Oh, we'll see. But after all, he's not undead for much long in this movie, unfortunately. You know what? Here's the thing. You thought that Bella Lugosi had a really intense stare, a hypnotic stare. I honestly think that... Yeah, in this movie, the Boris Karloff doing that stare every single time, I'm sorry to tell you, it's a dummy. Is it, is it like a still shot? It's a dummy. What? They carved a dummy out of wood to be his face, to do the stare, and they just used that one shot. If you think that he does that stare every single time and it's good acting, it's just a dummy. I thought I I didn't I I didn't know that. That's amazing. Thank you for that. But I I hey I applaud. You know most people would think that, but it's just well I th- a dummy. I thought it was a still shot that they had moved slightly and then they took his eyes and they boosted the white in them to make them look like real bright and creepy. And, and you know, to to and like shine a flashlight on. Well, that's probably what they did with with Bela Lugosi and Dracula. But I'm talking about like with this. But yeah, that's I, I'm I'm shocked by that. I'm gonna have I'm, I I need to be electroshocked back into coherence. I don't. That's that's my mind is blown. I'm serious. And so with this movie, the advertising for it was literally just Boris Karloff, the Mummy, and then everyone because Frankenstein was such a good movie. Everyone was just like, dude, has Boris Karloff, I'm going. He, he's a household name. I mean, I'm telling you, there's a lot of movies that they could say Tom Cruise is, and they would say something, something. They just plastered him up on front. Yeah, which that's a, the star system. They put the question mark in Frankenstein, but now that they don't do that, it could be seen as less spooky, now that you know it's a real person. But he's a real person anyway, kind of. His role as Ardith Bay is immensely... Yeah, they did that for that one movie, and that's fine. But once they said Boris Karloff in the you know the end credits, where they said you know they they repeated the the cast. Once people started knowing, oh, that name started floating around, and they were like, once they saw it again, oh, that was that was that guy that was in Frankenstein. I'll I'll go see that. I mean, there's so many movies, like I said, from there then on out, where yes, the story was what brought people to the movie theater, but many many times it was the star. Like they'd say, I'm gonna go see that new James Cagney picture. Or I'm going to go see that new uh, Fred Astaire movie. They wouldn't say the title. They would just say, well, I don't know what it is, but it's got Fred Astaire in it. So I'd... It's got Tom Cruise. It's talk, got Tom Cruise or Boris Karloff. i got to go. So that, that's, that's, that's very common. 
I mean, you, you know, a lot of movies will use, sometimes will even use unknown actors that are really good. They may not be well known, but the story is really what does it. And, and, and that's amazing. But many times it is the star that makes it. It's what causes a producer to lay down money. I mean, they're like, I want to invest in this movie. Uh, who can we get? Like recently, we watched uh, Sing 2. That came out recently in which there's a star named Clay Calloway in which they're just like, we're going to get our money and go get Clay Calloway. And that's kind of the thing, the star nature that has been developed yeah. in uh, cinema. And yeah, and and, this, and honestly, you can start to see this. It, it was forming, I think, previous to this. I mean, because remember somebody like uh, Charlie Chaplin, the famous silent film actor? You know, pe yeah. people would go see a Charlie Chaplin movie. They'd say, let's go see the new Charlie Chaplin. I mean, so the star... The star making, you know, and the star focus was happening before this. But yeah, Boris Karloff, he sold this movie. Um, he yeah. did a pretty great job, and his mummy portrayal was pretty ominous, although he was only the mummy once. So uh, let's talk about the makeup that was on Boris Karloff for this one scene. Uh, so that makeup artist for him, his name is Jack Pierce. And so what he did is he put cotton, something called collodion, it's like syrupy, and gum, and he put it on his face, he put clay in his hair, and then he wrapped him in tons and tons of, you know, acid-treated, uh, oven-burnt bandages. And this took nine hours. This is like an overnighter kind of thing, all the way to, like, 7 p.m. That's <laughs> goodness. And it was painful to remove, too. He said he didn't have his much pain as he did in with that makeup so yeah and, and uh, of course jack pierce he did uh frankenstein makeup for, so so him, him and boris karloff were good buddies by then or at least he was like oh jack please don't make it hurt again now tell me if this is right did jack pierce do the wolfman makeup later i don't know i didn't see but he might have i think i seem to remember that i could be wrong these are the main people basically once we get to the wolfman there's like the famous halloween people's frankenstein you have dracula you have the wolfman and you have the mummy and the creature from the black lagoon later in the 50s although that was less less used in halloween eh, maybe yeah I, th I think it's harder for somebody to dress up as as the gill man as he's known let's talk about zeta johnson uh, or johan <laughs> yeah johan or johan yeah johalla johalla so uh she she uh, i think she isn't she um austrian she's austrian right that's where the where the accent comes in yeah and she was uh born in a village in romania which is called uh Oh. If I'm saying it correctly, or... Deutschbenchek. That, that is so hard to say. We apologize to anyone who's Romanian or Austrian in, that is listening, if you are. Or people who think we're saying, like, mumbo-jumbo, we don't mean to say. We're doing our best. As we get to, you know, Japanese actors and, and Chinese actors, I'm going to try to pronounce them as best I can. But most names are pretty straightforward to pronounce if you try. But I think we're gonna we're gonna have some difficulties now and again, so please forgive us. Yeah. So uh, Zeta, she went to Broadway basically for a lot of her career and stuff. We have like a lot of people in this cast and uh, many casts around this age where it's just like they're just actors. They played in this movie. Maybe they went to Broadway as well. So uh, her filmography basically you have uh, the same years. This is movie called uh, Tiger Shark. You have The Man Who Dared. Uh, Grand Canary, and then it jumps all the way from 1934 to 1986. She took a big break uh, for Raiders of the Living Dead, her last film. 
she was just like, I'm done. And then she's like, wait, no, I'm going to get one last film, sneak it in there. Yeah. Do, do you think that uh, I wonder if that movie Raiders of the Living Dead was actually like an you know Egyptian theme knockoff of Raiders of the Lost Ark or something? And and maybe they had her in there kind of as a, hey, by the way, we got Zeta Johan from The Mummy. Uh, check it out. And then she goes, hi, you know, she's like, hi, everyone. I'm old, but I sure am adorable. Yeah. One one quick scene and she's probably out of it. I don't know. I don't know. I think sometimes... Because she's soon far gone. Yeah, I would tell you also that something similar has happened to... Sadly, later, we'll talk about this later, but happened to Lon Chaney Jr. Later on, toward the end of his life, he was he had some struggles with alcoholism, and he really kind of you know hit the skids, so to speak. And some of his later acting is just really atrocious. But this person was a lot more charitable. She even uh, taught acting to people with learning disorders, you know, dyslexia. Wow. Any sort of stuff. That's very nice. We need more people like that. We do. That's amazing. Also, you know, um, I did like her in this role. And we'll we'll talk about the similarities, I think, to this and Dracula. But she she really does play that she kind of recognizes something in, in Ardeth Bay slash... Imhotep, that she kind of, you can tell that she's kind of going, you know, she... Yeah, she's a lot more of a proactive woman than we've seen. She's a lot different than those common people, although she still does, you know, fall in love and stuff. For the main hot man, as we'll just say. <laughs> right. But, but the, the thing is, people didn't go to movies, like, like you know, two guys go into a movie or two girls, maybe. But a guy might be like, I'm going to take my best gal to a movie. We're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to splurge and buy her a, uh, buy her a soda pop. And we're going to have a little uh, uh, yeah, a little bag of popcorn, and we're going to go down and uh, to the corner theater, the Monarch, and we're going to watch us a movie together. And I'm going to, she's going to put her, her head on my shoulder, and I'm going to be like, you're my best gal. I don't know that. I'm doing a terrible job, but. Yeah, and she's half Egyptian in the movie. Of course, she doesn't look half Egyptian, but she's, I don't know if she sells the Egyptian part as well. Who knows? Also, her, uh, her thinness also doesn't do much well with her clothing sometimes because I'm like, uh, well, uh, the Egyptian clothing is kind of ill-fitting sometimes. Well, I don't think it's Egyptian clothing. I think it's more European-style, London-style. Uh, speaking of, uh, well, okay, you, you mentioned doesn't pass for Egyptian. Well, guess who else doesn't? Boris Karloff. So you kind of have to just go with it. He mainly looks throughout the movies just like this old man kind of person. He's just well. Crinkly. He has he, at least he gets a, a speaking role because remember the last time he you know he barely says anything until you know he hasn't done Bride of Frankenstein yet. We got uh, two more, yeah, no, not two two more years of podcast, but two two more years of movies that we will do before we get to Bride of Frankenstein. I'm looking forward to that one. But he actually does speak a little bit in that. But this one, he definitely gets a lot of speaking roles. You get to Boris Karloff is unrecognizable, like completely the makeup and the speaking. He's just a completely different guy. You don't even recognize him from Frankenstein. But uh, one more thing about Zeta uh, is that the line that she says where she wants the real Egypt, people have taken issue with that as against Muslim culture. Oh. Because she wants, you know, the sand and the Egyptians versus the Muslim people of Cairo cities. Oh. And uh, people have took an issue with that, which is wrong. Yeah, I think they're reading into that more than maybe was there. And and a lot of times people are ready to be offended, and they look for reasons to be offended rather than just letting something go. That's just my, my two cents, and that's my theory. 
So you mentioned Mr. Uh, Mr. Leading Man Hot Guy. Do you want to talk about Mr. David Manners, who is a alumni of our show, as he has been in, he, he was in uh, Dracula as Jonathan Harker. Yes, although he's completely unrecognizable from that role as well, because as you said before, he doesn't do well as, you know, as people like Renfield are much more interesting characters, but this time he plays a more leading man role again. He did, and, he did better. Uh, he's much more interesting, yeah, you know. I thought he was better in this one than he was in Dracula. They gave they gave him more to do. Honestly, I kind of like he is kind of uh He's kind of love struck with uh, Hel- uh, Helen Grovner, aka Zeta Johan's character. Because after all, he goes like when they in- and unearth Anaxanamen, he's like, "Well, I when I first saw her, I thought she was so familiar, and that I just was smitten with love for this mummy." <laughs> oh wow! I don't. Yeah, what what a uh, what a pickup line. He's really laying the rap on her. Oh, God, come on, come on. That was a good one. That was a good joke. That was a good one. No, so he would. Okay, honestly, I will admit, I was thinking about using a joke in this podcast about the, you know, the mummy, the world's first rap artist. But no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'll let that go. So what I was going to say about it is that he does do a better. He does does do a better job. They give him more to do, but he's just kind of a leading man. Snoop Anubis Sno- would be his name. <laughs> oh, I. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. My brain broke. Uh, no, Snoop Anubis, and, and and if you guys didn't know, I'm about to explain the joke. Anubis is a dog-headed god, so of course, and Snoop Dogg was always, you know, with the rapper from the '90s, and of course now. Yeah, I I grew up, I grew up, and people in my high school were always listening to Snoop Dogg. There was a music video where he actually turned into a dog. So when you said Snoop Anubis, I just, I I, I I'm speechless. So uh, let's go from Frank to uh, Sir Joseph. At first, I confused him kind of with uh, Edward Van Sloan a bit. I'm like, wait, who is who? Because they have like, they kind of look the same. They have, you know, white haired or gray haired, I guess. And uh, the same kind of suit a lot of the times. Uh, But I've, I've seen the difference between them now. But they're just, I just kind of the same. But not in acting. Well, whenever they start, whenever they start talking, I can tell the difference because Edward Van Sloan has it. You know, he rolls his R's, and he talk, you know when he's talking, he has that very famous way of speaking, and I can just pick it out. Plus, I, the way I did it is I went, this guy owns the museum. This guy knows a lot about mythology and supernatural stuff. He's basically Van Helsing. I was thinking, okay, this guy tries to burn a, a, a scroll and has a fake heart attack. Okay, so that's how I got them separated up. And of course, we've talked about uh, Edward Van Sloan in our uh, Dracula episode. So again, we're going to refer to a lot of universal people in universal movies, uh, of which appeared commonly. Because Edward Van Sloan was like, he's like the man that they took to a lot of things. You know, he played a lot of doctor characters. You know, he's uh, Dr. Van Helsing, Dr. Mueller. In this one, Doctor Va- uh, Waldman, Doctor Waldman, so many doctorates that he just just be awarded a doctorate in real life, I guess. Wait, okay, here's the thing. Okay, now I made a joke that he's Van Helsing, but here's the thing: there's like a handful of character traits if you want to think of him as an RPG character, and he fits them in all the parts we've seen so far of him. He fits them, except for his dexterity. Oh, his his dexterity is. Only two. I guess that means he's a min-maxer. He is a wizard and a cleric. No, he, he's a, he's, he's a low-level paladin. I don't know. Well, I mean, he's got to have... What does the D&D paladin have? Like, turn undead? 
So he's got to turn aside the. I mean, come on, he's uh, you know, he's Van Helsing's turning us turning aside undead at every turn. He's interacted with the undead a lot. Yeah, over his years, as many different characters. He knows. Okay, he knows what to do if he's faced with. He has to turn aside an undead. Like, okay, so he's got a cross. All right, in this one, he's got a statue of Isis. So you know, he's got whatever whatever you need to stop him. He's got the garlic. He's got the wolfsbane, right, for for. He's Renfield. got the crescent moon. He's got the Star of David. He's oh, got Oh, no. Okay. Now, I will tell you, there is a scene in the 1999 Mummy where there is a character named Benny, and he is a, a Egyptian guy, and he's real, like, cowardly and craven. Imhotep the Mummy, I mean, he's in, in full-on zombie-ish looking mode, is coming after Benny, and Benny is, like, scared, and he's, like, he pulls the cross out, and, and he's in these, like, trying to do like a Latin chant and the, and the, and the mummy's not doing anything. And then he pulls out, uh, he pulls out a crescent star and he starts doing something in, you know, in Arabic for, you know, Muslim, he pulls out Buddhist, uh, beads and he's like, dum, dum, man, dum, dum. and then he pulls out a star of David and starts speaking Hebrew and the mummy stops and he goes, ah, the language of the slaves. Uh, I see that you will be a good servant to me. That's basically what he says. You are dead on with uh, pulling out of the different uh, symbols. And I guess the mummy thinks that Juice Us was a good movie. Oh no! The, no, the, oh, because the mummy doesn't like Jewish people. I don't know that. I just I, I, I always thought that he was thinking, you know, back to the time when uh, the, the 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 people of Israel were enslaved to the uh, Egyptians for like. He'd be an alternate universe Hitler, uh, I guess. Well, but we're getting too far. We're getting too far. Let's roll it in. Why do we keep the... have to having to bring up Hitler in this podcast? Can we just wait wait five episodes before we bring up Adolf? <laughs> okay, so basically, I'm not saying he plays the same character Edward Van Sloan, but there are characteristics amongst the, amongst all the different parts he plays that are very similar. But I mean, you could say that about Boris Karloff too that he has some some go to character types. And people did that. I mean, of course, David Manners, he's going to play like the love interest and the kind of this wooden handsome guy. Uh, I mean, I don't know how many other parts he plays in other Universal movies, but I don't know. I'm, I'm always surprised when I see these. Here's the thing. Universal Studios, like this, like I said, had the star system where they would attack, they would have somebody go, well, I'll just make movies for Universal. That's why you see Edward Van Sloan again and Manners again and Karloff again, because they had contracts with Universal. And later on, when we go to see some Toho movies, which is Toho is a Japanese company, they had a similar system. Like, there's some actors we're going to see again and again and again. So much so that some people have come up with a theory that, like, they're all the same person. You know, lots of contracts. Oh, right. We need to renew ours. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> We don't f- 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 funny joke. What contract do we need to renew? I don't know. <laughs> the contract of the next actor. Let's just move on. <laughs> okay, who's who's next? Uh Bramwell Fletcher who plays Ralph. Poor Ralph. Poor 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 Ralph. Well, look, look. I mean, you got look, when life gets you down and you've seen the freakiest thing you're possibly going to see, you have to laugh about it. You know, he was a bit weak-hearted. Well, let's put it this way. He he couldn't leave well enough alone. I mean, he's the he's it's almost like the story of Pandora's box. He can't like not look in this chest. He's like he's like there's this chest with some kind of scroll in it. Leave it alone. I'm going to go I'm going to go away now. And he's like if anybody has ever seen this movie, he's the guy from the first scene, I think, that has to open up that chest and re- and read and mumble, you know, some of those words. And then the mummy comes out. Yeah, 
And uh, a New York Times reviewer has said that uh, apart from this scene and um, when the mummy is being wrapped in the flashback, which we'll, we'll talk a bit about the flashback, that's the only scary things about this movie and that everything else was the was costume melodrama for children. And I do agree it could be, there is a lot of, you know, melodrama kind of thing where it's like, oh, and he's captured her again. And then, oh, he's captured her again. And then it's like, I will make you my love. No. Yeah, I don't yeah know. okay, let's, let's put it this way. Please, Isis, come for me. That's a very cynical reviewer. Here's the thing, maybe it's just my modern eyes looking back on those kind of movies with a fondness of nostalgia. But, yeah, I agree, it's not... I mean, this is not Citizen Kane, which if you want to watch Citizen Kane, William, one day we'll watch Citizen Kane. Just doesn't even have to be for the for the podcast. We can just watch it to blow your mind. Yeah, this that one's a famous one. It's, it's insanely but, uh, good. Otherwise, from this bad review and the Los Angeles Times also, they had a positive review. Every, everyone else was like kind of mixed on the reception of this movie. Well, did it make good? How much money did it make? Did, it, did, you, did, you, see, did you see the box office? Let me see. Okay, let's see. The budget was one hundred ninety-six thousand. Of course, Rotten Tomatoes, which is a modern website. Yeah, Rotten Tomatoes gave it an eighty, an overall eighty, eighty percent for this movie. Eighty-eight percent with an average rating. It was pretty good. Could have done a bit better to meet uh, Dracula and Frankenstein and stuff. Yeah, it sets the it sets the tone. Honestly, if you're going to be like this, started the Mummy movie franchise. It started the craze. It's like, you know, now some of the other, like I said, some of the other movies follow more along the lines of, you know, their mummy is basically, he looks like the mummy did in the first scene of the mummy. He looks like that through most of the movie. So maybe what we think of when we think of a mummy attacking, we're thinking of the other movies. We're not necessarily, you know, people who watch this movie who think of the mummy and have seen that, that creature in different other movies, may, may in modern stuff, may look back at this first one and go, well, he's only the mummy-looking guy for, like, a minute? Yeah, and otherwise he's just a normal guy who's like, I'm going to do this stuff. Oh, no, don't do that. No, I'm going to do this stuff. I'm going to look in a pool. And uh, speaking of that, let's talk about, finally, talk about the flashback scene of which was shortened down, actually. So it used to be longer to where Imhotep had his whole history of all of his past lives as well and stuff, one of which involves a Saxon warrior who was played by Henry Victor, who was credited in the credits, but his scene was deleted. So it's just like, wait, I didn't see any Saxon warrior. Yeah, I think honestly, I think that sometimes when things are cut out, it was just too long, well, and we couldn't work on in it. In the modern era, they put those on the DVD as as a deleted scene, and that, and that's that's at least something that's good. This time, we don't have any of it. No, what, except for two stills, of which involved Boris Karloff scenes. Wh- just, when just they basically. delete scenes back then, they deleted scenes. They like like okay, we're gonna burn them. We're gonna we're gonna tear them up. We're gonna get rid of them. Yeah, because after all, they had a three week production cycle. So of which the first one was the first scene. So they had to get going. I mean, the Dracula also had a three week schedule. I'm pretty sure. So that was pretty generous. Yeah, I'm not sure how much this movie actually made uh, in theaters. I'll have to research that and figure that out. But of course, uh, in this movie though. 
He's in, uh, the mummy is Imhotep. In the later uh, sequels, it's Karis. Yeah, Karis or Klaris. Yeah. In uh, Abba and Costello meet the mummy. Yes, and also Mummy's Tomb and the Mummy's Ghost, I think. Also, one last person to mention before we go is uh, Noble Johnson as the Nubian. Yeah, he doesn't really get a name in this, but honestly, a lot of African-American actors did not get top billing and did not get get named parts. Again, change was a, was going to happen, but not now. Now we're still in the era where... You know, they would get part. African Americans would get parts, but it would not be anywhere near what it would be later. When you know, when you can have a movie and go, hey, you know, Morgan Freeman, Denzel Washington. We're talking about we're talking about you know Sidney Poitier, Will Smith, actors like that. See, the thing is, but we we will see Noble Johnson again. We're going to see him in Son of Kong and King Kong as well. Whenever we get to those movies, William, just be on the lookout for him and see if you can find him. I mean. You know, we can watch every scene that is, has any characters with dark skin. We'll go, oh, that's him. You know, we'll have to pick, have to find him. But again, look, we can watch the movie for fun, but we can also play my little game I like to play where I'll, I'll look for actors and go, oh, I know him. He was in this and that and the other. But uh, for now, Maybe that's just me. That's a wrap. Oh, that's a wrap. Oh, that's really good. That's good. That's good. I like that. So what we're going to do is we're going to lay down the sarcophagus and get covered over be resurrected be, be resurrected again to plot this thing i don't know <laughs> oh mummy help me Welcome back again to the ninth episode of the podcast. Don't mind that we tracked in a little bit of sand, mm. but uh, it should be fine. We're just a little bit sandy. We're <laughs> caked, absolutely caked. I hate sand. It's coarse. It gets in everywhere. Well, that's a quote from Anakin Skywalker <laughs> in The Phantom Menace. No, Attack of the Clones. I'm sorry, Attack of the Clones. Anyway, um... So we're talking about the plot of the 1932 movie, The Mummy, directed by Carl Frund, who, of course, in all but name only, directed Dracula. Um, so this is perfect that he comes back and, and he's directing this because of the similarities, which we'll probably talk yes, about. Yes, indeed. Let's jump into the lake, but that's actually a mirage. Yes, let's jump into a mirage and fall into the quicksand, which may or may not exist. All right, so... We're going to talk about the similarities between Dracula and, and The Mummy, of course, coming later. But All right, so the movie, of course, starts with one similarity to Dracula, which is Swan Lake. But don't forget the whole beginning thing that happens. You know, you have the universal glow. This is the first instance we have of is that. It, is it the first universal globe we get? Yes, as far as the archive.com. It's definitely not the last. And uh, we have the uh, set spinning around with the set of the pyramids and with the words the mummy on it i would like to see if someone collected that like it's in a collector's collection is that one pyramid with the mummy or even the whole set if they're lucky oh, wow i would love that well i know i know a lot of the the costumes and things like that and, and props are actually in different museums in probably a lot of places in Hollywood, you can if you go to Hollywood, you can find some some movie museums and see like pieces. I mean, later movies that the actors, uh, I know that uh, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger and guys like that, they would take pieces from movies they were in and put them into Planet Hollywood, which is a kind of a restaurant 
uh, with Hollywood theme. I don't know where these museums are, but if there aren't museums dedicated to these pieces, um, these especially costume pieces, I think there are museums with with, yeah. with costumes in them. But anyway. also in the cast listing, little goof Pharaoh has two A's and not one, so it's P H A R A O H. So they just spelled it with one A and removing the A between R and O. So that's a bit funny. I did not catch that. I guess people misspell it a ton of things. Also, the movie is copyrighted for next year because they're so bad at Roman numerals. It's copyrighted for 1933. Really? Which is really funny. I guess it's because they were like, uh, they weren't expecting to release so soon. They didn't have a date stamped yet, so they're like, we'll put it for next year. <laughs> and that's and that didn't come, uh, fortunately. Well, of course, you, you still see in the in the cast list the the Saxon, which does not appear in this film. Uh, reminds me of a Monty Python joke, sir, sir, not appearing in this film. But he, they, they leave him in there even though he's he's cut, which doesn't make any sense. Of course, they didn't know they were going to cut him till after this part was already made, probably. Yeah, it was a lot later down the line that they were just like, eh, whatever, just cut it. And after all, cutting parts out of films is a lot more dangerous than, like, at this time, because the film strips were literally cut. So, again, that's why it's really hard to recover deleted scenes. Even if the whole film didn't, like, degrade, then they were just cut out of the film directly and destroyed. So you can't just put it back in there without troubles. That's where we have the term, the cutting room floor, came from. Even today, somebody says, well, you know, I bet you the best parts of that scene were left on the cutting room floor. Even though, you know, people nowadays, when they're cutting, you know, they're cutting out scenes and using a nonlinear digital editor, probably. Some people still use traditional film for some movies nowadays, you know, but they'll transfer it to digital so it can be, you know, streamed or, or sent to theaters. Like IMAX yeah. the technology. They send in a specific format for that. That might be a certain type of film luckily but i don't know much sometimes we might talk about that way later down the line if we have time sometime i would like to go to an imax movie with you with a movie that was made for imax but there are a lot of movies that have an imax version so i do not like 3d and imax It, it gives me a headache i'm a traditionalist when it comes to movies i know that it's a little bit different than some people they get on the bandwagon of a particular craze or whatever but it's like why watch it if it's only in red and blue and stuff and you can't see the real colors of the movie or they just tint it red and blue and force you to use the 3D glasses. That's kind of dumb. Well, there are movies that have the version that has the, the red and blue, but they have the version that's just regular. But the thing is that you can tell that it's a 3D movie because there'll be a scene where somebody goes, you know, throwing something and he throws it at the screen all of a sudden for some reason. Or someone is, you know, I've seen one situation where somebody is playing with a uh, a paddle ball, you know, with a little rubber, rubber ball on a string and he's thwacking it at the screen and you're like yep this was originally in 3d like spy kids 3 was made in 3d that was its whole gimmick because it's 3d but uh for the non-3d version they had to go with spy kids 3 game over yeah exactly so um the movie as we try it was as we try to start talking about the movie we we of course we constantly derail and and follow rabbit trails because we have add we hey if our listeners were paying attention to our first episode, we talked about our inability to keep on a particular track. So we're going to follow those, but we'll try to steer it back as best we can. So I will be the first to steer it, if you don't mind. The intro part 
is the words. Can I read out the words I written down all of the words at the beginning? Did you all did you also get the the prayer to Amun-Ra? Yes. Okay. It says this is the scroll of Thoth or Thoth. Herein are set down the magic words by which Isis raised Osiris from the dead, which to mythology actually happened. Oh, Amun-Ra, oh god of gods, death is but the doorway to new life. We live today. We shall live again. In many forms shall we return, O mighty one. It shows how much they truly worship these fake gods. Yeah, exactly. They put uh, a lot of heart in it, but unfortunately. Well, first, the first thing that, that I'll talk about is when it opens the film, we get some stock footage of Egypt, specifically the va- I think it's the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, which is where one of the places where uh, I think Tutankhamun was found, uh, the, the boy prince. They use stock footage, model work, and location shooting. The location shooting that they used was in Death Valley, which is in California. Also in Red Rock Canyon, uh, which they just did some of the dig scenes. Red Rock Canyon is one of the most famous science fiction filming scenes so because it looks like an alien planet it does quarry area and some places over in there get used multiple times there's a scene in i can't name all the movies it's in but i do know the most famous scene in my brain that was filmed i think with with, in red rock canyon star trek it was star trek it was the uh the battle between kirk and the gorn yes uh the gorn captain yeah alien planets are really well done the episode was called arena it was like one of the first ones, and filming in like a canyon or like a quarry is like very common for these alien planet films. Is we'll get to a lot of alien planet films in the future, but for now we haven't really done any sci-fi stuff in a while. Well, the the, the okay traditional uh, Doctor Who was famous for being filmed in quarries. In fact, it almost became an inside joke. And then uh, a lot of in Japan there was a lot of I know. Uh, Super Sentai, which is the like the Power Rangers kind of stuff, the Japanese version. They uh, they would film a lot in quarries because you could shoot explosions without harming anybody nearby. So anyway, back to this. So after the establishing shots, we go into the British uh, Museum Field Exposition. Uh, ex- exposition. Ha! Ex- I'm the exposition. So expedition in 1921. There is exposition though, but I would like to talk about this first shot where we have the adventurous music. It's very grand introductory music. Yes. As you know, you have the scene of uh, Sir Joseph, the tapping of the chisel. He's chiseling at something. Sir Joseph Wimple like, it, is his Yes. Name. And it kind of felt to me as like a kind of like tapping a baton before a performance kind of thing. Like an intro to this wow. whole adventure. Okay. Okay. I'm, I, I like the sound of that, so to speak. Um, okay. So the thing that the 1921 time frame recalls, of course, inspired this was Howard Carter. Yes, we discussed this. Yes, but him and his team, there was something that I honestly think was very much invented by the newspapers. It was the curse of the pharaohs. And we do talk about that in the movie, where the curse comes for those who who open up these items. And a lot of times, I think that was invented just in terms of superstition to keep people from grave robbing 
uh, because they were superstitious. They would be afraid to mess with what would be pretty valuable if you go in there. And this curse is in this movie leads to a very funny moment where he's like, he reads the curse on the chest, as we'll see. And uh, he's like, here is a curse upon this chest that whoever touches it will die or something. I didn't write the exact line. Death. Eternal punishment. For anyone who opens this casket. In the name of Amun-Ra, the king of the gods. Good heavens, what a terrible curse. And then Ralph goes... Well, let's see what's inside. He's just sweethearted, but kind of dumb at times. Yeah, let's put it this way. He's really curious, and his curiosity overwhelms his need to be patient. And killed the cat. Yeah, it does. And one of the first things that Sir Joseph Wimple says to Ralph Norton is his name, is the name of the character. First things he said to him is something about patience, you know, that he needs to have patience. It sets up the characters being, you know, Ralph is, you know, the young, inexperienced, energetic helper character who we see and sir joseph he's the knowledgeable expert who wants to you know science archaeology is for science and for the advanced of human knowledge of the ancient times which is a very admirable goal and ralph is like the mummy is where we're really going to get our you know we've been looking around for a while and now we find a mummy oh this is you know this will be like the centerpiece for the museum you know the 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 show that we do because they've had a lot of fails basically is what ralph says is his second line it's kind of fourth wall breaking but he says that you know we haven't really had any successes and we'll we could play that clip here well it seems to me that that box we dug up today with the uh, very peculiar gentleman over there is the only find we've made in the past two months that will bring this expedition any medals from the British Museum. Yeah. what he says. And the other thing, the other thing is, jo- Sir Joseph says, well, we can get quite a bit of information just off these, just off these simple clay pottery pieces. I know it's not as, ooh, exciting as, as oh, we found a mummy, or, or we have this chest here. Or we found a daddy. Oh, wow. Yeah, we found a daddy mummy, if that's true. Um, so, but honestly, this movie is not called stuff written on clay pots okay this movie is called the mummy this mummy is no ordinary mummy it's not just some guy i mean uh dr muller is looking him over and he says that this is imhotep he is a high priest of the valley of the sun in karnak high priest of the temple of the sun at karnak or something is that right yeah that's what it says on the coffin of which has been scraped out in order to incur some but they can see it so it says hey i'm hotep sorry i'm hotep <laughs> yeah on the opposite side of where the scrapings are the letters of the blessing or something that so the stuff with the stuff dr muller says with the scrapings that were done uh on this on this text in there it makes it where he's he's not going to be at peace in the afterlife he's gonna you know so even he's being he's being punished even in death and that's why he think you know also he notices that his body parts are all intact his his viscera his guts are still in his body where the viscera were not removed whereas ordinarily they would have pulled them out with a hook and this intro's done a fine well of exposition you know it does well what like a first scene should do you know we have three main characters we have the villain we have intrigue in form of the there's a golden box we don't know what's in it and that's very cool the director jj abrams made his bones pretty much on the mystery box often he says that the mystery box is is something that you you tease that you're going to open and there's answers to the you know but inside are actually more questions <laughs> 
sometimes it's, it's frustrating. So it's like you're getting a loot box in like Fortnite or something and then it turns out to be three more loot boxes. <laughs> Well, this is a loot box if you think about it, because they do mention that we are not, you know, I think either Sir Joseph or someone else says we're not in the business of of loot. But of, yeah, we don't endorse that culture. No, but but honestly, it's not it's not for profit. The profit ultimately is knowledge, and and that that's what lives far beyond these items. And Sir Joseph's principle. After yeah, all. He, he is. He is principled. I like that. He's principled, but he's not as superstitious as Dr. Muller is. As we'll see later, the, the very front of the sarcophagus actually has a lot of those jewels and things scraped off of it. So uh, upon after discovering that, they they get the chest out and then there's like the wood is like literally rotting and it's going to fall apart at any moment. Because in this shot, they like they try and open it, but then like a wood piece falls out, and upon that, they exclaim that. That's very interesting. Yes, here's the thing. What did Imhotep do to deserve this? And Dr. Muller earlier said sacrilege. And, of course, uh, Ralph Norton says, oh, did he party down with the Vestal Virgins? But interestingly enough, it does say that the character that we'll find out later, Anaxonamun, that she was a Vestal Virgin in the temple. So he was not supposed to fraternize with her, but he did anyway. So Ralph Norton actually hit it on the head. So uh, upon which they go outside and the mummy comes out. Let's talk about that. Okay, they go outside because Dr. Muller is, he's saying, I, I advise caution. The gods of Egypt are still very much alive here. He's in Van Helsing mode. He's definitely believing in both science and history and also superstition at the same time. He's very much the savant in that. But he, what it is, is he, he takes him outside to talk to him about this. And they're of two minds on this. They kind of argue a little bit, but they, but they have a good relationship. So inside, though, even though the curse was read, which is death, eternal punishment for anyone who opens this casket in the name of Amun-Ra. Ralph then opens it and reads the scroll of Thoth. He's kind of, he looks like he's going, but he's, he's reading not very loud. So what it seems to be is even if you read it barely under your breath, the mummy will awaken. And unleashes sandy breath upon you. But, <laughs> but the great thing about Karloff's performance here. First off, eight hours of makeup. Yeah, this took nine hours, goodness. I thought, yeah, the eight, eight or nine hours by, by the amazing Jack Pierce. Of course, Karloff never complained. Well, he did complain about taking it off because it was the most pain he had in his entire life. Yeah, but he tends to make a little jokes about it. You know, he's a, he's a professional at, at the very least. So anyway, um, back to this. The thing I like is that there's lights in the scene and, and you watch, just watch uh, Imhotep's eyes and... And he, as he opens, you can see light reflecting on his eyeballs as, and, and as the glint of in the crack of his eyes as they're opening. And it's so good. It's so slow. And I mean, that's the thing about Boris Karloff as Imhotep is he's got this amazing stillness to him. Like he can just stay still and be very deliberate with his movements. So still he's a dummy. I already explained <laughs> that. Anyway, the you barely see the mummy do anything. The arm just comes out. And then he grabs it, and then he reacts, and then he just starts... He screams like a little girl, and then he starts laughing like... His stupor is just immensely terrifying, and we could play that here as well. His death 
even goes to his grave. Like, he goes to his grave laughing in a straitjacket, which kind of yeah. is a mummification because, you know, his arms are strapped to his chest and his legs are strapped together. I didn't so think about that's that. that's symbolic. Yeah, that, that, is, that is symbolic. The other thing I would say is is that, you know, it reminded me of the ultimate thing in horror. Is Spanish he... Renfield as well. <laughs> Well, yes, but it reminded me of a trope in horror movies where if you do meet up with the the monster or the creature or the threat uh, and you and you perish or die, which would be a horrible death, of course, it, there's another kind of a death where your mind cannot make sense of what has happened. So this is Lovecraftian kind of thing, which is an ultimate horror. It is Lovecraftian. Lovecraft ultimately has the right idea. It was about the mind's inability to make sense of what you're experiencing, so much so that you just crack and you end up in a, you know. In this case, he was a boiled, boiled, boiled egg. He was a boiled egg. Boiling under the sun. He's lost it. You know, that scene, of course, then fades to the modern era ten years later. Of course, we... Yeah, also, it's about time to move on from this scene. Now, the, the, other, the other part of that that's interesting is that uh, it took a while for the Howard Carter expedition that happened in real life to to get all the pieces out and to unfold everything. In fact, it took 10 years. So about the time that this movie was coming out is about the time when they were had fully exposed all these different things. So ultimately, they were playing right into the the Egyptian focus everybody had. Everybody was into, you know, Egyptology at the time, you know, just, you know, even armchair, you know, they were like, oh, this is fascinating. So we get into the introduction of the Cairo Museum shot, upon which the music here is, it's very nice and stark, very stark piece. It's very like... And then it, like, builds, like, over time. Uh, we could also play that here. It has, like, I don't really know about, like, it has low brass or, like, low violoncello bass kind of thing. Or both. It's kind of hard to tell because the quality is terrible. I really wish I would have been able to hear the quality of the music much better. But uh, I don't know what those instruments are, but they do a good job at setting the tone. And the interesting thing is about later mummy films, which we'll watch, almost every later mummy film features a bandage swathed, you know, ambulatory murderous monster. And so we almost, if, you, if you've never seen The Mummy, but you, you've seen the image of The Mummy, right? It just looks like somewhat similar to what Imhotep looked like in the first scene with freaking Ralph Norton out. Um, it kind of looks like that, but throughout the entire movie. So when you see this and it's only for like a little moment, it's kind of strange to you. But but the thing is though, none of the other movies that we'll see, the mummy character doesn't have the the staying power that the just amazing acting by Boris Karloff has. And then as the Cairo uh, Museum shot happens and stuff, after that we get the scene where we introduce Helen, upon which the upper strings kind of come in because it's like the Stark piece and then like the violins are added up to it. And I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you. 
it's really fascinating. I love it. It's kind of like a high-pass filter kind of thing, where it's like they cropped up the upper violence. Well, they didn't actually, but it's like they added the upper violence as if. That's now. Are cool. you are you talking about the 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 music or yes, the music? So you may have jumped past a scene. So uh, now that it's they're still in the main digging area of Egypt, and it's 1932 now instead of 1921. And ten years have passed, and Sir Joseph's son, Frank Wimple, played by David Manners here. You're talking about, you know, uh, not having any, any luck. Well, they don't have any luck finding anything, except when a man comes to the door. And we know him as Boris Karloff. He has, but he looks very, uh, very But very this is modern. after Helen's scene, after all. You know, the introduction to Helen happens here, upon which, you know, Helen is like, I want the real Egypt. As uh, it's a party, and like Edward Van Sloan is also there with Sir Joseph, probably, I think. And then that whole scene happens, and then you're talking about after. We're bound to forget some things that happen. Right, so the order is a little bit off, but maybe, but who knows. All right, so uh, this guy, he says his name is Ardeth Bay. Of course, we know that he's, you know, because of, we know, Boris Karloff, we surmise that he's Imhotep, but no one knows that yet. They're like, oh, this guy just had pig Latin for a name. Pretty right. cool. His so name he, is Bardith. No. So he comes in, Ardith Bay comes in, and he says, Why are you guys leaving so early, Sir Joseph? Uh, did you not find anything? And he says, I'll help you find something that you, that will make your trip worth it. About not 100 yards or so from here is the tomb of Anaxonaman, which is a Vestal Virgin who, who worked within the temple. And his long-lost love. Yes. His mummy. We find that we find that out later, uh, you know, because that that's revealed. But they do go down there and they find it. And he says, "We we Egyptians are not. It's against our rules to dig out the dead, but uh, it's not against the rules for foreigners." So I think that was kind of a cheap shot at foreigners, kind of saying, "Well, it's wrong for us, but you guys can do it because you don't care." That's what I got from that, but who knows? Maybe I'm reading into that. And so they're working and passing the rocks down along a long line to a pile while singing a work song, which uh, will definitely keep your spirits up if you've been working in the hot, hot, sandy sun for hours upon hours of time. And like I said, it reminded me of the song that was being sung later in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark by George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. I have a clip now of that music here. And I also have a clip of the music from Raiders of the Lost Ark here. And that's a pretty good comparison. That is a good comparison. All right, so um, we are... Now, the interesting thing, I think, about Ardeth Bay's makeup, or the Jack Pierce makeup, is he looks like he's living parchment. He's like old... Very crinkly. Yeah, crinkly. It, he, he's, he's, it shows his, his ancient nature. It's like the thing we used to do in childhood, where we take a piece of paper, we crumple it up, and then unwrap it again, and then crumple it back the opposite way, and it just makes it so crinkly, it seems like old paper. We do that for treasure hunts. Right. Now... The interesting thing is that there is a tall black man known only as the Nubian who I think is almost like a butler or servant in Sir Joseph's house. But there's something where 
Ardeth Bay has a connection to him and kind of almost makes him do stuff or tells him to do stuff. Yes, which comes about later when they finally meet up Ardeth Bay and uh, Helen, but that's later. So then we get introduced to uh, Frank. His name is Frank, right? Yeah, Frank Wimple. Do not confuse with Ralph, who was the guy who we saw in the first scene, Ralph, Ralph Norton. Laughed himself to death already. So this is our actual main character. You know, Shatner kind of guy, basically. Frank, uh, oh, don't don't say that. This guy has got less going for him than Shatner. But sh- they kind of have the same leading man style. Sh- yeah, but Shatner owns the scene when he's in it. His ego would never let you break him down to a, to a David Manners. I guess David Manners has got to learn his manners. Exactly. He's got to know who's, you know who's, who's God and who's not. All right, so Ardeth Bay... He goes to the Cairo Museum. And, and he he's, go- like, smuggled inside in the middle of the night, and he's just been staying there trying to summon Helen. Yeah, and they show him gazing longingly at the mummy of Anaxanamun. There is a nice little pan that they do through the city of Cairo to a balcony where Helen is. So it, it, it kind of – and she's kind of sad. So it kind of shows – maybe, you know, maybe is she feeling like – like empty, like... Yeah, she wants the real Egypt. That's the scene I'm talking about. The second scene overall of this movie. Now, I, I don't mean to rain on your parade about about Zeta uh, Johan's experience on this movie. This was only her third movie that she did. And she's not done very many movies after all. Like, about 10. 10, 11. But I will tell you, one of the reasons why she didn't do too many... I think she likes the stage more. Yeah, and, she likes Broadway a lot better. Um, the Mummy was not a happy experience for her. She was unable to resist the monetary lure of Hollywood. You know, you got you can't resist that sweet cold cheddar, that cash, uh, those Benjamins. But she had a contempt for the process of movie making. And for the director as well. Yeah, it, the, that was a consequence of that. Because it's like, I want you to wear Egyptian clothing and this kind of clothing. And she's like, all right. And she just did really like him from then on. She had a falling out with Carl Frund. So, but the thing is, though, all of that, you know, she's she's a professional. So none of that shows up in the movie. And she does a lot doing well as the part of the fall love at first sight with uh, Alan and Frank. Their chemistry is very obvious. Their chemistry is weird, though. And Oxenaman's mummy, he fell in love with the mummy. And so then, therefore, since Helen is like an Oxenamen in appearance, as is the obvious plot point, then their chemistry is immense. Um, yeah, but she even calls him on it. It's like, okay, look. So you're here, you're here and showing your love to me, man? No, she sa- he says, he says, well, I noticed the mummy because we went through, through all her clothes. And our toiletries and stuff. Yeah, I th- he means like, you know, toiletries means like, you know, perfumes and and cosmetics and stuff. And she's like, she's weirded out by this. I mean, she... She's like, why are you talking about a mummy's toilet paper? I thought you already put that on. (laughs) (laughs) Mummies are just covered in toilet paper. So, you know, why are you talking about toiletries? Uh, But think about it. I... I saw a dead corpse that kind of looked like you, and it was kind of cute. So hey, let's uh, let's hang out. I mean, that doesn't work. That that's a terrible pickup line. It's I a do. terrible pickup line, and it's kind of creepy. And she kind of calls him out on it a little bit. She kind of goes like, "What?" You know. So I gotta respect her for that. She's got a pretty good part in this, you know, as we'll see later. But okay, there is a there's a little bit more of a connection. I know you're saying there's a romance there, but the the connection and the energy. And the chemistry, at least to start out with, between Ardeth Bayer, Imhotep, and her, 
are is magnetic. I mean, he's not even controlling her mind. He's just he's just looking at her, saying, you know, telling her about, you know, how he feels, and she's drawn in by this. I don't I don't see any of that energy when she's with with Frank. I'm sorry. I know that she ends up with Frank. Spoilers, but the emotions that she shows in her face of channeling the Anaxanamen because after all they were definitely in love and so it's kind of like a two spirits in one kind of conflicting yeah and that you know the reincarnation of a love long lost has been reused so many times in movies i mean it's not even funny but so let's can continue to the next scene because we're all wound up in this one right <laughs> yeah i'm sorry i got wrapped up in in, in talking about this <sighs> yeah where are we? I'm in denial. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Blow to the chest. Oh, no. It's, uh, you know, I, you've, you, you're, I feel like my brain has been dragged out through my nostril. All right. <laughs> All right. So here's, here's the thing. Where, where is the part where there's something that happens where, Ardeth Bay is, he's back at the display gallery and he's kneeling by uh, Anaxanamun's mummy and he's got the light of a lamp and he unfurls the scroll of Thoth and he starts reading aloud. He's, uh, he's ready to cast his spell this round. Oh yeah, this happens, this happens before that. It happens in between the party and doing that is that she gets summoned, uh, to him. Yeah, she just leaves the party and she's like stone cold, just walking. She gets a taxi and she goes to the Cairo Museum to meet him, but can't unlock the doors. She faints on the front steps. And then that's how they meet. That's how Frank meets her, right? Yeah. So they t- they took they took her back to the hotel, right? And then they fall in love and stuff. She's well, so to speak. She says Imhotep. She's and and of course, uh, you know, the whole time that she's traveling, which I, which is really well done scene, very atmospheric. He's saying Anaxanamun. I'm not just like this. I must get in. I must. And she starts saying these these words and these sentences and stuff. And uh, Sir Joseph says, "Well, that's that's an ancient Egyptian, and that hasn't been uttered for thousands of years." And Doctor Muller he tracked uh, Helen to the museum and then to the Wimples, and he comes in. And, you know, Helen is like, she finally comes to her senses and she's like, I feel really weird about what happened. I don't know. This is embarrassing. And he's he's trying to make sense uh, of all this. Here's where we can talk about the similarities with Dracula. So first off, there's possession of a young woman's soul. And we're talking about Mina. You know, there's an ancient supernatural being who is, you know, between the female character's new love. Who's lived forever and then come back in modern times to find a girl. Yes. Also, as we said before, Swan Lake. However, Dracula does have wives, three of them in fact. So why do you need another one? This is where the mummy is different. That is where the mummy is different. That's what I think the mummy does a little bit better is it gives the main character in, ter- in terms of you know the, the titular character, the mummy, it gives him more of a impetus to do what he does. With Dracula, you're like, uh, he just wants to suck her blood, make him one of him and hang out. I mean, it's not, it's not like he even says... Yeah, Dracula is creating an army. However... The mu- the mummy is just focused on getting one girl, 
and that's all that he wants. Yeah, but but it's not like he just goes, Give you anything you want. want I'll give you anything, anything you need. <laughs> I'll make your dreams come true. Ladies and gentlemen. Sign up now for William Sayernods. <laughs> Yes, that was that was from, of course, Muppets Most Wanted, who my younger son watches all the time. So if, it, if it's stuck in our brain, brother, that, Ethan. That, brother Ethan, that's stuck in our brain. So we apologize for that. So let's get on with the movie. We've kind yes. of wasted a lot of time. No, all the all this time was well spent. It would only be wasted if I was standing in line at the DMV. But no, I'm not standing in line at the DMV. So let's sum up how over the course of the movie, there's kind of a pull and tug between Ardeth Bay and Ralph and the gang, basically. You mean uh, Frank? Frank. <laughs> just, just Frank. You said not to get Frank and, and Ralph mixed up, but we did it. Yes. Yep, we did it. You got us. He just seems like a Ralph, and Frank just seems <laughs> like a weak-hearted man. That just, just imagine he's like, hey, my name's Ralph. And you'd be, like, totally into that guy. Yeah, yeah, great. Hey, Ralph. Great. Now, Frank, Frank sounds more manly to me. I've known a couple Franks, and they were kind of manly. Anyway, so here's the, th- here's the thing about David Manners, right? So he is in pretty much these, you know, kind of these dreary, drip kind of characters, romantic leads or whatever. And didn't he quit? acting a few years later. I don't know. He might have. I think he did after a couple more. Honestly, I think a couple more roles like this, and he was like, yeah, no, I'm done. He got typecast a lot. Now, we talked about typecasting and kind of owning a role when we talked about... Dracula. About, talked about Bella Lugosi, because he got t- kind of typecast in this kind of foreign-sounding... And he's um, like, well, I want to Lugosi something else. Oh, <laughs> Yes, and Karloff got you know. See, the thing is, Karloff and Lugosi, you know, Kar- Lugosi may have, may have you know ballyhooed. He may not ballyhooed. He may have whined about it a little bit, but ultimately, you do what you do, and you do it well. And Karloff, I think, really kind of embraced it throughout his career. He was like, you know, the nicest men that you'd ever want to meet. I mean, there's stories about him dressing up as Santa Claus and like going to hospitals where disabled children were and like giving him gifts and stuff i mean this guy sweetheart but he but he all the the roles he played had something weird about them or strange or or otherworldly or just just strange strange and creepy or mysterious and so i mean he i don't think he ever wanted to really play a traditional romantic lead kind of character um you know or slapstick kind of comedy relief he was what he was, and he embraced it, and we're still talking about him to this day. So maybe maybe if David Manners had embraced these kind of roles throughout his career, he would have gone a little further. But, but let's, just, let's just go to the scrying scene because, <laughs> um, you know, we haven't done this movie a lot of justice, skipping a lot of the melodrama for children, but that's basically kind of what it is. It's like, oh... I want you. No, I don't want you. What? But maybe I do. And it's just like a lot of that. So let's go to the when they meet up in the hotel, uh, and she has a dog. And uh, I remember this scene fondly because the dog barks at the cat, but the cat meows at the dog, but the cat does not have a sound. Your dog is frightened. So they literally didn't have a sound for the cat. And I'm like, well, that's a mistake. So what about the scrying scene earlier where 
Ardeth Bay wants the scroll of, of Thoth so bad because that because he has to do the spell with it, right? And Sir Joseph uh, Wimple, who is Frank's dad, and Dr. Muller, they have it at uh, their offices. And so I think uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Wimple is going to burn it. And uh, he's in the scrying pool, and he's casting a spell upon him. The music is like, like, da-da-da-da-da, like very dramatic music as he's choking him to death through the scrying pool. Dr. Muller told uh, Dr. Wimple to burn it. And so he's burning it. He's the one grabbing his chest. I remember that. And then, uh, of course, they find him and they do... Uh, I think the Nubian, I think, burns some newspapers, I guess, to help them out. Um, because he's been indebted at his, uh, as the servant to the Ardith Bay. Right, but he still, he still makes Yeah, it. the scrying pool is pretty cool because it's like one of the great instances of green screening or compositing that we have in this movie. And uh, I'll talk about another one a little bit later. But, uh, yes, we, uh, we have the scene where Sir Joseph is trying to hide the skull and uh, gets killed. Basically, uh, they meet up in the hotel, and Imhotep shows Anaxanamen uh, in Helen the uh, his past and stuff, and explains it. But then immediately makes her forget it and stuff. You will not you, you will not remember what I show you now, and yet I shall awaken within you memories of love and crime and death. What a great what a great line. And for to cut the short the story even more shorter, uh basically she gets captured and then put into Egyptian dress to then be with this scroll of Thoth, which has been smuggled out and not burned by the Nubian. Go back real quick. What do we see in the pool but but just the best, I would honestly, I wouldn't call this a flashback. I call it a splashback. No? All right. So it show, but see, the thing is, the part that I like is that it shows that they were going to, they were going to uh, wrap his body. Yeah, this it. is the second scary scene that uh, mentioned in the New York Times Revere was the first scene was when he's, uh, Ralph was giggling in stupor. Second one is when he's being wrapped alive and his eyes are just wide because he's so scared. He's and being a lot of wrapped people alive. do have a fear of suffocation, and I think, and claustrophobia, and I think I kind of do too. You know, as his arms are on his chest, and it's being wrapped over his mouth and over his eyeballs. The people that did it to him were killed, and then the people that, that killed them were killed uh, by someone else, I guess, that was then killed. <laughs> no, it's, it's kind of funny, but the way, they, the way they refer to the scene is they're like, and those who did, you know, who did this deed were killed to keep the secret. And those who killed were killed to keep the secret. I'm like, okay, how many more do you have to go? Regardless of that, we're left with him revealing this to her, but she's maybe he's hoping uh, to awaken within her those memories that she has locked deep inside her due to the reincarnation. And so then that happens, and then she's like begging Isis to come to save her. And then they go through and they bring the, uh, this artifact object of Isis that we've talked about, this symbol. They've been doing a lot of stuff with that over this movie. You know, they hanged it over the door, but then they removed it from the door forcefully with the scrying pool uh, in Hoptep. And uh, so then it falls from the door so that she can escape to meet with them in the, to be turned into Egyptian stuff. And so then they're in a car going for this. The car, they're obviously not in the car on location. 
obviously. That's common. It's green screen. Yeah, that's very common. This is very innovative because this car scene has an instance of green screen in a car, and I thought that was really cool. Very innovative movie. It's not quite what we would call green screen today. It's it's known as rear projection. They put a screen behind it, and then they'd have the people in front. You know, kind of like what they do in uh, The Mandalorian as well, as they have this whole, like, dome, and then they project uh, the background on the dome to be on the set and stuff. And uh, if you watch the little documentary behind the scenes of Mandalorian, very great series, go. Yeah, it is really good. It's related, but honestly, it's as far removed technologically speaking as far as evolution as we are from bugs. I mean, it's so, it's so far. I mean, it, it, yes, they're related, but the ability for this new kind of rear projection to adapt to the camera angles that you point, you know, and the lighting, everything, it's, it's, it's insane. And I think the true innovation that you can use with this has not even been tapped into, I think. Because yet. it's only been used by the Mandalorian, and that came out kind of recently yeah and don't they use the unreal the unreal engine not to nerd out on this but they use that they actually do use the unreal engine for part of that to you know to show the the change yeah i'm, I'm kind of nerding out here and so then they the gang arrive to the scene and uh this is basically the final scene in the film and what can i say that the gang says but door mummy i've come to bargain <laughs> That's that all is I can a say. Strange line. No, they cut. The, okay, here's the thing. The thing that I like about this is that your expectations are a little bit thrown aside. You're thinking, oh, the boyfriend's gonna come along with the old Van Helsing dude, and they're gonna save the day. But when as they're coming in, though, they are cowed and they are brought low by Imhotep and his hypnotic power and his energy. But they are distracting Imhotep long enough for Helen, a.k.a. Anoxinamun, you know, for her to pray to Isis. She prays to Isis, and Isis's statue actually moves. The Ankh that's in her hand, she lifts it, and it burns the scroll of Thoth. And he actually starts crumbling, and it does, like, an interesting... Yeah, he should have just put on his masking tape. Oh, why... So that he can go hide from this situation. I think you're losing it here. This is what happens sometimes when we get into We're losing about it. Stuff. We're losing it, too. This has been very disorganized. Who was the hero? Who saved her, the girl? She saved herself. Very proactive woman. She actually gets a role, and she gets to face the enemy, as I was saying before. And uh, I had not watched The Mummy prior, and now I'm like, yay, this is what I meant. The basic sexism has been overthrown. Well, not completely. Trust me, this is not this movie did not change, you know, sexism and feminism in Hollywood movies to to going forward. But this person tried or at least did. Ultimately, when people talk about heroines that are actually saving the day, the heroines that I would that we're going to see later on are very smart. They uh if they something needs to be done, they 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 go, "Well, I I can do it. I, I don't need to wait for a man to to accomplish the goal." I can do this. And that's great. You, you you give all your characters equal weight. So you're not trying to just, you know, make it the where the woman has to be rescued. And that's just how, you know. But honestly, William, a lot of the movies going forward, you're going to see that a lot. So that that's what makes movies like this kind of stand out. Because 
it's kind of progressive in the way it, it looks at progressive and innovative in terms of uh the proactive woman character and the usage of the unchained camera inventor yes carl frund and honestly, uh, there, there's a lot of innovations we've talked about so far. And back projection as well. Yes, rear projection. And they are used so often that now we, we just, we, when we watch movies, we're just like, well, that's how it is. That, that's what, how innovations work, is they, is they ultimately become your ability to do art with it is dependent on those innovations. You know? and, then, and then there's new innovations, like, with the, like you said, the Mandalorian's uh, full dome rear projection that's ad- adaptable because of the Unreal, Unreal Engine. I mean... There, there's constant stuff that's happening. I mean, even even things uh, that James Cameron did when he made Avatar, you know, with with motion capture and uh, uh, li- live mocap or mo- motion. Cap- I would recommend, indeed, for this audience out here to watch this movie. It's a pretty great one, although it does, of course, have melodrama for children because it's like. Everyone's no. like, I'm gonna thwart your plan. No, I'm gonna thwart your plan. No, I'm gonna thwart your plan. Well, it is a very, thing. it is a very simplistic story. Multiple thwarts that my hands are just so thwarty that they have frogs thwarts on them. May the thwart be with you. So no, the thing that, <laughs> the thing that I noticed is this: you you just said melodrama for children, but you're just aren't you just saying that because that's what the reviewers said at the time? Yes, I'm quoting. Okay, so here's what they said: it, it was not a great success at the time of the release but i i've read a review that somebody did recently and they said possibly it could be because audiences were just spoiled because they had dracula and frankenstein and then now the mummy and there's just all these really good you know movies one after the other and and ultimately isn't that what's happening to us now a little bit with the marvel marvel movies or star wars if you remember also it's it's this talk specifically real quick um before we head off into uh the sands of egypt um there yeah we'll close off this movie by saying that uh indeed we thought it was a really great movie and uh one of the things i noticed i put this note all the way at the bottom accidentally is that uh before going to the hotel, or after it, Helen talks with Art of Bay. She actually says goodbye on the phone. And uh, as you showed me a video earlier, uh, people don't commonly say goodbye on the phone in movies. It's That's how you can tell if it's the Matrix, the spinning top of the Inception, if you will. And uh, who knows? Yeah, that, that, you know, and, and that's why I, I think I notice it more now, you know, and you're probably going to notice it once we point it out to you, once it's been pointed out to you that people don't say goodbye in, you know, on the phone in movies, you're going to see it everywhere you look. And then when they do say goodbye, you're like, ah, okay. It's kind of like, you know, a normal thing to us now, you'd think, in our reality. But whenever we see it, we're going to go, oh, you know, it'll be like, it'll be an oddity rather than the norm. Also, hey, I did know I did learn something. Uh, you know, we talked about David Manners. You know, we're going to bring him up again one more time in the course of this conversation. There is a movie that, and I think it's on YouTube. I believe I can I can put a link on the blog about it, but I think it's called The Death's Kiss or something like that. It's a mystery that has I think it has Bella Lugosi and uh, and Edward, Edward Van Sloan in it. He actually does has a really complex role. Or a very, a more complex than he's played, and he does a really good job in it. So I, I, I hated to say some bad things about 
you know, I didn't, you know, I said David Manners was better in this one than he was in Dracula, but you know, I kind of did sound like I was kind of down on him, but I honestly, I haven't watched that movie, but it's on my list to see, and I can put a link to it in the blog if anybody's interested, but we have quite a few more films with Boris Karloff. We get to see more of his work. Um, we're going to see him again in 1935 with Bride of Frankenstein. We're going to see Bela Lugosi again uh, in the next episode with uh, White Zombie. And uh, Lon Chaney might also appear as well. We haven't seen him in a while. No, we're going to see Lon Chaney Jr., his son. Ah. Ah, that, that's okay. I'll call, I call him Lon Chaney too, but it's hard because, you know, you, you know it's hard because... Technically. Yeah, we'll just call him Jr. <laughs> so, uh, as we finish off, I just wanted to say, Jason... Jason, wake up. You are not... I don't know. What's an Egyptian name? Gordon Ramses. Gordon Ra- Gordon Ramses? <laughs> this, I don't know. Um, this, this scarab beetle is cold. It's terrible. Take it back. This... this, this. C- Cesso Chris. I got a random name generated. You are not Cesso Chris. You are Jason. Come back. Come back. That's the last lines of the Mummy movie. As I'm talking to the daddy. Yes. They should make a sequel called The Daddy. Please. Just please. For the love of everything good in this world. Let's give a shout out, you know, to, to all the mummies out there. The daddies love the mummies. You know, if there were no mummies, none of us would be here. Um, so... In, in honor of, of Mummy's Day, uh, which everyone celebrates every year, uh, we will raise a, a glass of non-alcoholic wine uh, or grape juice, as it's known, to all the mummies out there, including the mummy. Passion fruit juice. In, in, including we're going to raise a glass of pa- passion fruit juice to Imhotep. And uh, I, I think we're going to – I know that – remember I said that they don't really talk about Imhotep anymore. It's like Karis or Karis or, or Chris, whatever you want to call him. We'll call him Chris, Christopher. Uh, we'll just call the next mummy Christopher when we see him. Yeah, you know, imagine a mummy in the Hundred Acre Wood. Yeah. Oh, Chris, Christopher Robin. No, we're uh, we are going to see uh, Imhotep again when we get to The Mummy and the Mummy Returns, uh, when we get to the movies of 1990, the 1999 and the early 2000s. Uh, we might even see Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Indeed. You know, and uh, I will tell you this right now. Some of the animation for The Scorpion King... In The Mummy Returns. In The Mummy Returns is terrible. It's like, it's chef's kiss terrible. And... Here's the thing, you know, when we get to it, there's some guys online that actually redid it with using some deep fake and some new animation, and it actually looks better. So, you know, hey, special edition of The Mummy Returns, if uh, if Universal wants to do it. But anyway, uh, we're going to say goodbye to Imhotep. Uh, we hardly knew ye, uh, but we'll, we'll see him again uh, in a more villainous turn when we get to the 1999 movie. But uh, we have quite a few more mummy movies to go as we go into the 30s and 40s. I think the end of the 40s is when we see them last. We might see the mummy one more time after that when uh, when he meets with his two arch nemeses, who would be named uh, Abbott and Costello. So we're going to see the mummy again. Don't be sad, everybody. You know, the, the mummy is crumbled, but the, the mummy can be resurrected and reincarnated as... And Dwayne The Rock Johnson will be there as well, waiting for us in all of his glory. He's got to bring the people... The CGI in- was probably... Well, it wasn't new then. Uh, new technology would have been uh, Young Sherlock Holmes. You want to do Young Sherlock Holmes uh, if we can? Oh, that's not on our list, but I, it might be. 
Uh, you know what? We could someday. We will look at young Sherlock Holmes and do that. Yeah, that's that. That's uh, one of the first CGI elements we'll see. And no, Tron does not count. Tron was not CGI. Tron did not have a character. Cars are not characters. No. <laughs> That is why we hate Pixar, because why no. did you make a car movie? But <laughs> we've gone on a tangent, we've a gone... thread of madness and linen. So, yeah, madness and linen. So we're basically just going to uh, be, you know, end up in straight jackets uh, laughing about uh, some strange man who decided to take a walk. Uh, and, uh, did you see his face? William, did you see his face? Okay, so all right, we are going to shamble off into the sands of Egypt, uh, leaving behind a trail of bandages. So and come back for the white zombie. We will come back for the white zombie. Ha- have a good one. Uh, you know, oh, oh, and the white zombie. Uh, he's more human than a human. And uh, anybody who is of my age and likes metal music knows what I'm talking about. But if you don't, William, that's fine. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Don't forget to open your third eye and telepathically message us at cinefanpod at gmail.com. Set your chronoscope dial to the future setting and peruse cinematicfanpodcast.wordpress.com. Hunker over your ham radio as your keen ears listen for the ghostly voices tweeting on our Twitter at cinematicfanta1. Exchange all of your money into Republic credits and donate at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash cinefanpodcast ending transmission now